You know, I was expecting something seedy and underground, really. His company is called ChemSky. It had about uh, five different lab rooms, and he gave me the full tour and showed me these fentanyl analogs being synthesized in this industrial-sized glassware. And the, the most they were making were the synthetic cannabinoids. And they had all this stuff out that was already bagged in, like, one kilo Ziploc bags that were tied up. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these bags ready to go out. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. This is your co-host, Zachary Siegel. And before this show starts, I just have a brief announcement to make. From November 6th to November 9th in St. Louis, the Drug Policy Alliance will be hosting their biannual International Reform Conference. So many speakers and scholars and researchers who will be at this conference have been guests on our show. So we hope that uh, you all listening um, will be there as well. Narcotica will be a presence. Troy and me will be there uh, running around with our mics and uh, catching some great audio for future episodes. It's going to be a really fun weekend in St. Louis, and we hope to see you there. You can still register at reformconference.org. So again, uh, we really hope that a lot of you out there listening to us and supporting us will be there and we get to uh, meet in real life. Okay, on with the show. If I could sum up Fentanyl Inc., a new sprawling book of nonfiction, history, and some quite dicey investigative journalism... I would probably say drugs, or at least the ingredients to make them, used to grow on trees. Hello, Narcotica listeners. I'm here with Ben Westhoff, author of the new book, Fentanyl, Inc. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, you know, like like I just said, you know, drugs used to grow on trees. That's sort of... (laughs) a big, you know, theme that I took away from your book. And, you know, I'm just thinking like you must have started writing this book a couple of years ago, at least. And while you were writing and reporting this, deaths from illicit fentanyl skyrocketed, like more than a 500% increase in just a few years. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're... Uh... You know, people listening already know, but fentanyl is basically synthetic heroin. And so, yeah, you're right. Uh, You know, drugs used to primarily be plant-based. So like marijuana, heroin, cocaine, all come from plants that grow out of the ground. But these new drugs that I write about in my book uh, are all synthetic. And there's hundreds of new ones. They're almost all made in China. And they... um, they tend to be more potent than the natural drugs they're replacing. Right. And so like you're saying, like traditionally this market, especially with opioids, it had been dominated by drugs like heroin or oxycodone. So, you know, both of these require uh, poppy plants and sunlight and land and farmers to produce it. And, you know, that's those days are waning, don't you think? Yeah. um, From what I've heard, the Mexican cartels, who have traditionally been the ones bringing the the marijuana, cocaine, and heroin into the U.S., are trying to switch over to fentanyl as fast as they can. Because, like you said, uh, because these plants need to be grown outdoors, they're more susceptible to law enforcement. And plus, um, fentanyl is just so much cheaper and so much more powerful that it's easily more easy to smuggle across the border. It takes smaller amounts to sort of stash in cars and, and trucks and things like that. And because it's so much more powerful, um, 
there's actually a demand for it in some places as well. Right. I mean, I definitely want to get into some of the, the demand issues with fentanyl. Um, and, and so, you know, stepping back a little bit though. So a lot of the, a lot of like the interviews about your book and, and, and writing about it, you know, like going on fresh air and other podcasts, there's a lot of talk about, about China, especially about your undercover trip uh, to these labs, which I do want to talk about, but there's a whole lot of other fascinating stuff in your book, and you dedicate a lot of space to the history of all kinds of drugs. Like you write about how saffron oil used to be or can still be the base for MDMA and poppy. You know, we still need that for opioids. Cannabis gives us marijuana. Coca leaves gives us cocaine. Why does understanding the fate of all of these drugs, why is the understanding critical of these drugs to understand fentanyl? Most people want traditional drugs. And, you know, there's a reason. These have been field tested. Drugs like heroin and MDMA, LSD, cocaine, marijuana. I mean, these drugs have stood the test of time. And in, in most cases, the new synthetic versions, you know, we have um, a new type of MDMA, we have a new type of LSD, cocaine, heroin, marijuana. In almost all the cases, these drugs are much powerful and much more dangerous. And so people, for example, LSD, that's a synthetic drug too, but no one has ever overdosed and died on LSD. And so I write about in my book, this big sting in 2000 at this missile silo, this abandoned missile silo in the middle of Kansas. I love that story. Yeah. Such a good story. It's such a crazy (laughs) story. It involves a a stripper who was picked up at the strip club by this guy who turned out to be one of the biggest LSD manufacturers in the country, if not the world, according to the DEA. And he eventually flipped on his partner. There was a huge bust. And when that was in 2000, and when this LSD lab was taken down, it, there was basically very little LSD to be had anywhere in the U.S. And so in its place, this new version of LSD made in these Chinese labs uh, started being popularized. And it has the unfortunate name of uh, these variations of being called N-bombs, and, uh, yeah, that's a terrible yeah, name. Yeah, <laughs> it is terrible. 25I NBOME is what, what this one specifically was called, and N-bomb for short. But, but basically, whereas, like I said, LSD has never caused anyone to overdose and die, these N-bombs were causing lots of people to overdose and die. And so I think the big lesson tends to be if we, the more we try to eradicate one of these sort of long-standing traditional drugs, the more something new and dangerous is going to step in and take its place. Right. And, you know, academics have called that like the iron law of prohibition, where basically you say you, I think like alcohol prohibition is a really good example of this. Like smugglers during prohibition did not really want to smuggle barrels of beer and wine because that can't get that many people drunk. So they resorted to bathtub gin and moonshine and these highly, uh, you know, high volume, uh, high proof alcoholic beverages. Smuggling those could get many, many more people drunk, more bang for your buck. But also what happened is a ton of people got poisoned by that stuff and died. And this, this plays out in so many, like across your book, that's constantly the, the, the lessons, uh, from, you know, what, from the, the LSD story to MDMA to methamphetamine, like every, every drug that people do like, it it gets in the crosshairs of sort of America's enforcement apparatus. And then the precursors to that drug go, scarce and sometimes they're you know burned in these huge uh sort of ritual burnings and then what takes its place is something uh more potent and more dangerous like you're saying yeah and i think one good example of this is spain 
in Portugal where drugs are basically decriminalized. And, you know, I, I visited a bunch of harm reduction facilities and groups in Spain, and they basically have no problem with fentanyl at all. They have no problems with drugs like N-bombs at all. Um, and the reason the harm reduction activists give is because, like I was saying, users want these traditional drugs. And when they can access them without sort of fear of, of strong penalty, they are more likely to want to avoid these bad new drugs like fentanyl and N-bombs. And so, um, you know, she actually, this harm reduction activist I talked to in Spain, went so far as to kind of advocate a little bit for some of these dark web markets because they, you know, they're like eBay or Amazon. They have user ratings. And so the, the sellers have an incentive to actually sell a quality product that's not going to kill someone. And users recognize that. Right. I mean, we can definitely get into some dark web stuff here. I mean, uh, the Silk Road, Ross Ulbricht, I think that's how I pronounce that. Uh, he, you know, was quote unquote made an example of by the judge and got a life sentence for, uh, you know, operating the Silk Road. And there's sorts of, you know, there's all sorts of other issues there. They were saying that he was, you know, calling hits and doing other crimes other than, you know, running a massive illicit drug market. But, you know, when they shut down the Silk Road, it's not like that ended the dark web, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to, you know, speak highly of illicit, unaccountable markets where they sell firearms and, you know, they sell all sorts of super powerful synthetic opioids and things like that. But at the same time, I think we we're learning again and again that attacking the supply side and spending billions of dollars trying to stop dealers and manufacturers from making our drugs is pretty much like flushing money down the drain. And that ultimately we have to work on the demand side. We have to understand why people are using these drugs, how they can do so more safely, how we can make sure they have the right information and, you know, try to encourage them when it comes to bad drugs, not to use them at all. And so, you know, about some of these these strategies, you know, one of them goes back, you know, it has a long history, drug checking, and, and you talk a lot about that. And, uh, you know, interestingly, you got onto the fentanyl story because you, well, you're, you're, you cover music, right? And you were wondering why are people dying at music festivals? And that sort of led you down the road to, to fentanyl. Can you sort of talk about how, drug checking uh, is super prominent in the uh, like EDM uh, scene and then also how the strategies of drug checking in EDM are now being uh, adapted outside of what we would might call the rave scene into checking, you know, for fentanyl. I used to be a raver back in San Francisco, back in kind of the first wave in the late nineties and early two thousands. And, uh, People were taking plenty of ecstasy back then, and it was always just a pill, and people swallowed one pill, and then they were, you know, rolling all night, and I never heard about anyone dying or anything like that. And then fast forward to the mid-middle part of this decade, and I was covering the rave scene, the new rave scene for LA Weekly, where I was the music editor, and um, now people weren't calling it ecstasy as much, they were calling it Molly. But supposedly, it was supposed to be pure MDMA people were taking. But nope. <laughs> yeah, but not, not at all. People And people, you know, my first clue was I watched people taking it, and they didn't take a pill. They had like a bag of powder that they kept dipping their fingers in and kind of redosing every 10 minutes or so. And so to me, and then I found out that people were dying at almost every big rave in L.A. and, you know, all over the country someone would die at almost every rave. And so I was, and, and the deaths were always blamed on ecstasy and Molly. And so I said, well, this, this can't be right. And that sent me down the rabbit hole. And I found out that, you know, almost all of this supposed MDMA was adulterated. 
And I learned about NPS, novel psychoactive substances. And these are the new drugs we've been talking about. They used to be called designer drugs. But basically, NPS are just any drugs you haven't traditionally heard of. They're all synthetic. They're all made in a lab and then mostly made in China. There's hundreds of new ones, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of new ones. And the most dangerous of them is fentanyl. So that's how I got onto that. And and back to sort of the, the EDM scene, uh, you know, you relied heavily on uh, organizations like Dance Safe, people like Mitchell Gomez. I mean, these 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 people have been, you know, in the in the sort of rave scene for for a long time, and they've been uh, providing harm reduction services at festivals. And you know, by the time I got to you know sort of the end of the book, and I'm not spoiling it for anyone, but you 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 do talk about how people who are trying to do harm reduction at festivals, they, they have to sort of play a, a game of cloak and dagger. Like, like they can't just set up a booth and check drugs. Like, can you sort of talk about um, some of the issues with, with, with the drug checking scene and, and why people are afraid to just uh, provide a service that could save lives? In this era of adulterated drugs, and it's not just party drugs, but like heroin, almost all heroin in a lot of places is cut with fentanyl. So it's, you know, cocaine too is often cut with fentanyl. And so we live in an era where almost all the drugs are adulterated. And so it's more critical than ever for people to know what's actually in their drugs. And so drug checking kits, I spent a lot of time with a group called the Bunk Police and they sell, I think, the most sophisticated drug checking kits on the market. They can test for hundreds of different drugs. And and they and and Dance Safe were both selling their drug checking kits, but Dance Safe was more sort of above board. So they would set up at festivals. I went to the Electric Forest Festival in Michigan, and there was they had their big bright yellow booth one day. And I went in, they showed me around, and then the next day it was gone. And it turns out they were forced to leave because they were selling drug checking kits. And there's this obscure law called, known as the Rave Act, which is co-sponsored by Joe Biden. And basically it penalizes promoters of raves and concerts because the idea is that if they allow drug checking, that's tantamount to admitting you know drug use takes place at your festival or your rave. And so obviously there's plenty of drug use taking place right out in the open in all these places, but they they crack down on the drug checking. And, um, and then I also got the chance to meet with bunk police and they're kind of more of a rogue actor. And so they didn't get, they don't often don't get permission at all. They sneak the drug checking kits into festivals and they distribute them clandestinely. And, um, and, uh, and then the last thing I'll say about drug checking kits is that most, the most important one probably going right now are these fentanyl testing strips. And these are getting increasingly sophisticated. They're really cheap. They cost like a dollar wholesale each. They're kind of like a pregnancy test. If you dip the the drug the fentanyl testing strip in a solution of your drugs it will tell you if there's fentanyl or not so it'll have one stripe if there's fentanyl two stripes if there's not and that's a really critical tool nowadays right and it's interesting that those strips are actually uh meant for testing urine right and and now they've been uh you know some very clever and smart people have realized that if you dilute uh, a little bit of powder you know, the, these, these little strips are so sensitive that they can, uh, yeah, test for the presence of, of fentanyl. And so, I, uh, yeah, I just can't help but think, you know, it, it's yet another instance where uh, American drug laws really get in the way of, um, I think, what are pretty common sense and pragmatic solutions to the reality that yes, people are going to use drugs and why not, um, you know, create the conditions where people have some uh, knowledge about what's in it and that they can dose accordingly. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in states like Pennsylvania, it's still illegal to use any drug checking kits. And yeah, I, you, you wrote the piece about Joe Biden and the crack house laws. And turns out he was up to all sorts of nonsense uh, back in the day. Yeah, so, so we we just had a a, a good talk with a uh, an opinion writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer named uh, Av Gutman, and this uh, he was saying how sort of the crack house statute is almost like a, it's so vague and so abstract, and uh, it basically just is like a, uh, this like projection screen for whatever moral panic is currently. Uh, present. So back in the 80s, you know, these crack houses where everyone was worried about crack houses and crack was a big problem. And then in like the late 90s and 2000s, it was raves and underground parties. Everyone had to worry about these. And and then now that statute's being applies, being applied to, you know, supervised injection sites. And so it's just like this, this, this dumb, incredibly vague statue just won't go away. Doesn't it make you nostalgic for the time when ecstasy was like our biggest problem, biggest thing people had to worry about? Right. How, how quaint, because like, you know, there were, uh, you know, I, I don't want to like dismiss it. Like people did die at, at, at raves and things, but it, like, it does seem that the, uh, the environment and the conditions were a big contributor, people overheating. Uh, you know, heat exhaustion and, and things like that were, were major contributors, but the MDMA was sort of blamed all the time. Yeah, and that's still the case. You know, people have to stay hydrated and stay out of the sun and stuff like that. But um, but MDMA, you know, has all sorts of uses in therapy and, um, for, you know, helping people overcome PTSD and you know, thankfully, we're starting to see the door opened a little bit for that type of research to be permitted as well. Yeah, thank you, Johns Hopkins. They're they're doing big work and and sort of I think going a long way to sort of normalize the idea of psychedelic therapy. So that's really exciting. Absolutely. And so you know, I, I do want to talk about uh, about China and and. Uh, I mean, I, I was like stressful reading your, your trip out there. Like it, I was like, Oh God, like this sounds really, uh, intense. So yeah. Can you sort of walk us through, uh, maybe like, so you, you began to communicate sort of online or by Skype with like salespeople and others working in labs and, and you told them like, Hey, I'm looking for, uh, fentanyl analogs. I'm looking for precursors. And yeah, so what happened from there? Yeah, well, um, everyone kept saying that all these new drugs came from China and it was China this and China that, but no journalist had ever been in one of these fentanyl labs. And so, you know, I was nervous to do so, but at the same time, I knew from, from my research, I knew these weren't like cartels, you know what I mean? Like, when you think of Colombia and Mexico, you think of really violent criminal organizations. But when I could just Google all these different Chinese chemical companies making these drugs, and they had their own website, and they had like the contact information for salespeople. And so I made a fake email address, and I just emailed them and said, I'm interested in buying, like you said, these different fentanyl analogs fentanyl precursors, which are the most important ingredients for making fentanyl, and then also synthetic cannabinoids. And so that's they're called fake marijuana. Sometimes they're known as K2 and spice. They're, they're a synthetic form of marijuana that is not chill and relaxed at all, but makes people's hearts speed up and overdose and things like that. So, so um Eventually, I had enough leads. I had enough of these organizations saying they'd be willing to show me around that I bought my plane ticket, and that was early last year. And I went inside of two organizations. And the first was a kind of a typical drug lab where they made these fentanyl analogs. These are basically types of fentanyl. Um, and they specialized in drugs that were legal in China excuse me, uh, yeah, it's legal in China, but illegal in the U.S. So their markets were all customers from Western countries where these fentanyl analogs and stuff were banned. 
And they specialize in this kind of narrow window when the drugs are, are popularized on the internet, but they're still legal in China. So there's a lot of people, I think, on these different drugs forums on the internet who specifically are seeking out the latest fentanyl analog that hasn't yet been banned. And so they sell, these companies sell as much as they can. And then when China does ban them, inevitably, then the company will just switch to a new molecule with the chemical formula slightly tweaked. So, so it's legal. So it's, it's, it's kind of this game. So um, I met with this guy, his name was Dawson Lee. This was in Shanghai. And he kind of spent the first half of the day sizing me up I think he didn't exactly know what to make of me. He kept asking if I was a journalist, and I kept denying it. And then he um, he took me to lunch, and you know we became buddies or whatever. And so finally, he called his driver and said, "I'm going to take you to the lab." And and because you know I said that actually my friend was a drug dealer, and that I just happened to be in China, and I wanted to see the quality of his lab because. If it was up to our standards, then my friend would make big bulk orders. And so, so this guy came to pick us up. He was this big, muscly guy. And I was like, is this guy like the bodyguard or something? Is this guy the muscle of the operation? And it was, it was nerve wracking because I don't speak Chinese. I mean, the Dawson Lee, the, the lab chemist, spoke English. But when we were driving out to the outskirts of Shanghai, I couldn't read the street signs. I didn't know where we were. My GPS was not functioning really. And um, I would have been like trying to drop a pin every two seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to do that because you can't bring your own cell phones into China. You have to get you have to like rent a cell phone that the government keeps track of. You have to submit your passport and your ID to, to borrow a cell phone. And so it, you know, it's not the most current technology and I didn't know how to use it properly and the data was all screwed up and it was just a nightmare. Um, Journalism in China isn't exactly viewed the same way as it is here, <laughs> for one thing. Yeah, and I was as worried, if not more worried, about the Chinese government, you know, putting me in jail as I was about this company, these companies. But um but so finally we arrived to the lab and I was expecting, uh, you know, I was expecting something seedy and underground really, but this was a, it looked like a new construction suburban office park. Basically it was like a, there was a big fountain out in front and um, it smelled like new paint, you know, or poured concrete or something when we got in there and there were on, on one floor, his company is called ChemSky, had about uh, five different lab rooms. And he gave me the full tour and showed me these fentanyl analogs being synthesized in this industrial sized glassware. And the, the most they were making were the synthetic cannabinoids. And they had all this stuff out that was already bagged in like one kilo Ziploc bags that were tied up and there are hundreds and hundreds of these bags ready to go out for sale. They had these giant drying machines. I think they were, for, you know, for drying the the chemical. And um, I was sort of, I was pretty much shocked by the scale of it because it's not really that big a lab. They have like five or six employees, but, and these, you know, these analogs, these fentanyl analogs and the synthetic cannabinoids are so potent that only a really small amount is necessary but they were sending out just giant quantities. Yeah, like Scarface style, like mountains of powder. Quantities, yeah. And and like I was reading that, thinking, you know, so in in the U.S., there's all these stories, and there's a lot of like unverified uh, sort of scare stories of of first responders and police officers like touching fentanyl or just like being near it and then vaguely feeling ill. And I'm thinking like, well, you know, these like lab technicians and other people are in these rooms like overflowing with with powdered uh, fentanyl analogs. Yeah, and they, those have been debunked, those stories about police officers just touching fentanyl 
and overdosing. Um, that I actually yeah. talked to a dark web dealer who sells car fentanyl, which is a hundred times more potent than fentanyl. And he just, you know, bagged it up with his bare hands and he said nothing ever happened to him. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's a miss. I mean, it can be fentanyl can be made into like an aerosol and weaponized that way. So if you spray a fentanyl solution into the air, it can like put people to sleep. And the, the Russian government used that to counter a terrorist attack at a theater in Moscow uh, a number of years ago. And it put some people to sleep, but it killed some people too. A lot of people, not just the terrorists, but the the hostages too. So that that's that's true. It was like this weird incapacitating like spy cocktail and they pumped it through the ventilation system, I think, and and then, you know, sort of stormed the the theater and, and I was wondering like did they just like like unleash a bunch of first responders and try to like Narcan everyone? Like like what did they even try to do in that situation? It just uh, sounds yeah, I don't insane. even think they had Narcan. It was a very ill conceived plan. Yeah, I mean they, they they did I think kill some terrorists, but they killed like hundreds of theater goers. <laughs> Good God. Yeah. Jeez Louise. And and so yeah, like you you so you know what 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 I learned I think most from your book is just how uh, involved the Chinese government is in uh, the chemical manufacturing industry and how huge of a role that countries like India and China both play in as really you know big manufacturers of, of cheap generic drugs. And so there's this booming enterprise of, of uh, you know, manufacturing cheap pharmaceuticals and, and manufacturing tons of like industrial chemicals. And, and the government, um, you know, incentivizes these companies with huge tax rebates and tax credits. And, and like, I did not know, like, you know, I don't really know how the, the Chinese like Communist Party works and how the government works, but it just sounds like such a, a Byzantine uh, system ultimately, but it's ultimately sounds very capitalist, like, uh, Chinese corporations that, that do chemical exports are like heavily favored by, uh, the government. Yeah. You, we've starting to hear more and more about the U S and China clashing over China's exports of fentanyl, which come to the U S they come to the U S either through directly through the mail to individual users and dealers or, through Mexico and, and up through the border. But, and so, and Trump has even made it part of his trade war saying that China needs to stop this fentanyl exports or else he's going to put more tariffs on this or that. But I think most people until recently really believed that China was at least trying to contain this industry and people gave them the benefit of the doubt. It's just such a sprawling industry that it's hard to rein in. There's all these producers who make both legal and illicit chemicals, you know, both like pharmaceutical, legitimate pharmaceuticals and chemicals that are made intended for recreational use. But from my reporting, I found out that not only is China not doing enough to stop this industry, it's actually subsidizing it through the tax code and other benefits. And so it turns out that if you are a Chinese chemical company exporting fentanyl, you get like a big tax break. And it's not just fentanyl because fentanyl has a legitimate medical use. It's used in hospitals still. And so some of these companies could argue that, you know, we're, this is the legitimate product, but it's not just fentanyl. It's all these analogs of fentanyl that have no medical use at all, all they're used for is basically people getting high and, and they lead to tons of overdoses and deaths. And also even uh, at least one synthetic cannabinoid, which has no, which is not used medically. And so I think you're right that a lot of people ask me like, is China, is this a form of warfare? Is China trying to take out US citizens this way? And, you know, I would say that 
I think it all started as kind of capitalism gone amok, like you were saying, because they really were trying to promote their industry, this, this chemical export industry, the legitimate part of it. And that's why they began offering all these tax rebates. And so I think that the, this, uh, these drugs getting these rebates too are sort of an unfortunate side effect. And so, you know, it's all been a terrible situation. Yeah. And right. Like what, what I actually really uh, did, I really did like your uh, sort of analysis about the opium wars, how like the West, uh, you know, really basically addicted a ton of uh, uh, Chinese people on opium. And it was like this, again, this this problem of, you know, a country importing uh, something like opium into another country and, and really causing a lot of uh, social problems because of that. And now it's flipped where China is the one exporting it and we're the country, the Western country, that is having all the societal fallout from from this. And it is like a a bit of, of irony, uh, like a reverse opium war, I guess. There, if you are a, kind of a conspiracy theorist, <laughs> there is, there are, there is a lot of evidence. I mean, there's, I should say there's some evidence to back up these theories that China is doing this on purpose, that they are trying to flood the U S with destructive drugs. There's like this, this U S army white paper that quotes, um, these high-ranking Chinese generals saying that there are all these types of non-traditional warfare that they were considering, and one of them is drugs warfare. And so the thing that I found most curious was that last year, in the middle of the trade war, kind of at the, the peak of the, the opioid crisis, you know, fentanyl deaths higher than they'd ever been before, China raised the the tax rebate for fentanyl exports. So it was 9%, but they raised it to 10%. And so at the very least, it seems just like a very sort of callous thing to do. And at worst, it seems like really trying to add fuel to the fire. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know about the like, the intent, I definitely don't have access to the minds of Chinese generals. But uh, it, like without even, you know, mounting a, a conspiracy, just the, the way that I think it, I, I read it is that like, uh, yeah, capitalism and this weird mix of capitalism and communism in China and this sort of, uh, this like new strong nationalism about, you know, China, you know, being part of, of global trade and, and, uh, you know, incentivizing exports. Like, I just think there's a lot of interesting politics and, and economics going on uh, trade-wise and, and that you're right, fentanyl is like this weird, uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, enterprise that, that is, is weirdly sort of legal there. And, 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 uh, I mean, and it's not just happening to America, like Estonia, for example, I think you, you write is like, you know, almost like 100% taken over by, uh, synthetic analogs, like it, like a lot of places well, in Canada too. Canada, has these Vancouver, horrible problems. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this, I like it, it's hard to, really think that this all happened because of a few generals in China. I think there's a lot of other, uh, I guess what would be called market forces, you know, like the invisible hand of the market is pointing right in the direction of fentanyl. Right. Yeah. And in China, from people I talk to sort of the way law enforcement works is that it often doesn't matter what laws are on the books, right? Because Fentanyl is, is illegal there and uh, is scheduled. And in fact, in May, China scheduled all fentanyl analogs. And so that was after I was in China. But this was um, a re result of a negotiation with the U.S. The U.S. wanted them to schedule all fentanyl analogs. And so they did it. But 
but sometimes it's not just about the laws on the books. In China, for example, it seems like it, it's a matter of enforcement and crackdowns. So the government's priorities are where the resources are put. And so meth, for example, is a huge problem in China. And so in recent years, they've been pouring more and more money into law enforcement, shutting down meth labs and things like that. But fentanyl is not a problem among Chinese citizens. They do not have uh, much of an addiction rate or overdose death rate at all from fentanyl. And so a lot of people speculate that's why China is just simply not dedicating the resources to shutting down this industry. Yeah, and also multiple people uh, that you spoke with in China, they, I think, explicitly said that they do not import or they do not sell to any other Chinese companies or Chinese individuals that they only do exports. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And so, right, there is no, uh, you know, wave of overdoses in China from fentanyl. And I bet the majority of Chinese people don't know that there's like a massive overdose crisis in America. They definitely don't. In fact, I talked most, even the people selling the fentanyl precursors who I talked to in China didn't know what fentanyl is used for and hadn't even heard of fentanyl. They didn't know anything about this product they were selling at all. And at first I was really skeptical, but I, I now I pretty much believe them. You know, the top level, the CEOs of these chemical companies, they know, but sort of the rank and file salespeople, um, chi- uh, fentanyl is just not known in China and there's a state controlled media and they, you know, there's not independent journalism there. So nobody's really talking much about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. Like the, your interactions with the rank and file, they're like texting you smiley emojis and they're like, you know, young people fresh out of college and, and yeah, like how could they possibly know that the, that the, that their labor is sort of directly involved in this massive, uh, wave of overdose deaths it's it's quite uh yeah and the ones who did know they would just at the time like i said these fentanyl analogs were still legal and that's how they justified it they just said well if it's legal in china that's enough sort of moral justification for me to sell it and so you know changing gears a little bit back to you know american uh drug enforcement uh, and, and, and the government specifically, you know, pouring resources into, um, you know, eradicating precursors and busting up quote unquote kingpins. Uh, like for example, we, we got El Chapo, right? Like, but (laughs) after we got El Chapo, it's not like drug, the drug flow stopped. And so like, what's your, like, I don't know. I, Fentanyl to me just means like game over. Like, how are we going to, uh, you know, enforce and interdict our way out of this? Like, we can't. Like, like, where where do you come down on this? My favorite example to make my point for this issue is that the DEA helped kill Pablo Escobar, right? And that that was the time that we thought. Colombian cocaine was this horrible scourge and that we thought that taking him down was going to drive down cocaine um, distribution to the U.S. But that did not happen at all. And in fact, Colombia now is sending more cocaine to the U.S. Um, and, other, and around the world than ever before. You know, the the rates are at an all-time high. And so The same with El Chapo, like you said, that hasn't slowed drug exports from Mexico. And it it seems likely that the next battleground is China. And there's all this new legislation being drummed up to penalize China for exporting fentanyl and all these chemical companies and things like that. But, you know, again, like, like you were saying earlier, if China, if we do manage to suppress China's production and hold China accountable, the industry is most likely just going to shift elsewhere, probably to India, where in fact they're already making huge fentanyl seizures. And they, like China, India has this really 
sophisticated chemical and pharmaceutical industry. They're making tons of generic drugs. They, they have the infrastructure. They have the, the trained scientists. And so, and India is even less willing to engage with the U.S. on these issues for whatever reason. You know, China is at least passing these new laws the U.S. wants us to. So it's, it's probably, it could be another example where the war on drugs doesn't reduce the problem. It just sort of pushes it somewhere else. Yeah, and I sort of am like bashing my head against the wall as a journalist covering this because the 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 response uh, from you know so many officials is still crack down, you know, do more drug war. Like we need more mandatory minimums. We need uh, crackdowns. Like it it's more and more and more of the same that we know. It doesn't end the flow of drugs, it just splinters it and creates what's called like the cockroach effect where you just uh, like it just scatters and then you have a bunch of smaller, uh, you know, players in the game, but they're still providing and meeting the demand. And so like, is it just like a complete lack of imagination on the part of uh, officials and sort of like uh, the the sort of mainstream discourse in America. I mean, like, do they really believe that, you know, more of this uh, sort of game of whack-a-mole is going to solve anything? I have sympathy with people who, when they're presented with these overwhelming death totals and when family members have died from fentanyl and opioids, they, they want to hit back as hard as they can. They want to do something that's tangible. But we've had so many decades of failing war on drugs policies that my conclusion in the book was that we, we have to stop focusing so much on the supply side. Like I said earlier, we really have to focus on the demand side. We have to make it safer for people to use these drugs. We need to, people to be able to test these drugs to see if it's fentanyl or something else. We need more education. We need young people need to know, need to have real honest information at their disposal. So if, if, you know, kids are just told like we were when we were kids that all drugs are bad, all drugs are going to kill you, then they're just not going to believe it. And they're just going to disregard all this information entirely. But if kids are given nuanced, honest information, you know, maybe for example, that marijuana, actual marijuana, where you can smell the buds, where you can see the actual flowers is, you know, maybe not a great habit, but it's not going to kill you. And it's probably no more damaging than something like alcohol, but that there, but at the same time, there are really bad drugs out there. And if you're just at a party and someone passes you a bag of powder, that really honestly could kill you. It could have fentanyl in it. And I think kids are smart enough to make these distinctions as, as long as they feel that they're, they're being given honest information. And so that's just the tip of the iceberg for sort of this harm reduction model, wherein we accept the fact that people are going to use drugs and we try to make it safer for them. Yeah, I mean, th that is what I really liked about, you know, where your book landed, uh, you know, going to places like Slovenia and Barcelona and talking about uh, different models and approaches like in Switzerland where, you know, you can go to a clinic three times a day and inject uh, pharmaceutical grade diacetyl morphine. Like there are just so many other approaches out there that uh, America has not tried and is sort of like reflexively uh, repulsed by for, you know, a variety of cultural and political reasons. So I do think uh, you're right that uh, 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 an unlearning and new learning process is uh, absolutely a, a critical part of um, beginning to, you know, address this problem from uh, a new set of strategies and using new tools. Absolutely. That's very well said. I 100% agree. And so, you know, we're just about uh, 
at the hour here. And so I just want to, uh, yeah, ask if there's uh, any other points, any other takeaways, you know, what's the, uh, other than, you know, landing on uh, what other countries are, are doing and, and new approaches here, what, what else, uh, you know, about your journey writing this book, uh, you know, sticks with you today? Well, it's not just that we're supposed to try these new harm reduction methods that have no track record. You know what I mean? There, these, these methods are being used in other countries, in Europe and Canada, and they're having success. There are places like Barcelona where they have supervised injection sites where people can shoot up drugs legally, but there are doctors and nurses to assist them and clean needles and they can be connected easily to treatment programs. These programs are succeeding in a lot of places. And so I know that it sounds crazy to a lot of Americans to have a place where you can legally use drugs, but I think that the, the epidemic is just so bad now. It's so unprecedented. More people are being killed by fentanyl than any other drug in history, more than anything in the US um, for people under 55. You know. Drug drug use is killing more people than car accidents, than gun violence, than even at the height of the AIDS crisis. This is worse. And so we're at the point now where we should be open to new solutions. We have to think outside the box because what we're what we're trying is just failing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that's uh, I hope, uh, you know, your book gets in the hands of uh of a lot of people who, uh, you know, after reading it, come down to similar conclusions. It, it's hard to, I think for me, come down anywhere else. Well, thank you for uh, providing a forum to talk about these issues. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, who has just been killing it lately, and our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music by Pictures of the Floating World. Narcotica is sponsored by Billy Bob's Big Long Slong Shape Bongs. Just kidding. That's a made-up product, I hope. In all seriousness, we don't want to clutter this program with stupid ads. So thank you so much to our Patreons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you want to help us out, join dozens of pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. Or help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're finally on Spotify! Tell your friends about us and carve our name into the bathroom mirror at Burger King. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about the medical benefits of cocaine, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.